Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Educators and parents often wonder, how bad is social media for kids? It's a valid concern, considering nearly 9 out of 10 teens are online almost constantly, or several times a day. That's according to the Pew Research Center. A recent story from Wall Street Journal reported Facebook has internal research that shows its photo-sharing social media app, Instagram, is harmful to teens' self-esteem, especially among girls. So as parents, what can you do? Coming up, we'll be talking about that report, and we'll also hear from a child psychologist. Dr. Katherine Steiner-Adair is also the author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. Now, what questions do you have about your child's relationship with social media? You can join us, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. First, joining us on Zoom is Bianca Brooks. She's a New York Times feature writer and host of the podcast Ask Viv. She's written about her relationship with social media, which started when she was in middle school. Bianca, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Now, I mentioned you started using social media in middle school. I think that's fairly typical. So tell us what grade were you in and how did you get sucked in? I was in seventh grade and social media was a little bit different in the early 2010s. And it was basically blogging sites, these micro blogging sites. You had MySpace, but there's also this one called Bebo, which stood for blog early, blog often. And unlike the social media of today, it really wasn't this extremely expansive network that connected you to the entire world. You couldn't see what kids in Hong Kong were doing, kids in Paris were doing, it was really just the bigger neighborhood. So I would see what people were doing at the high school, I would see what my eldest sister was doing, who's a year my senior. And yeah, it it was just a much smaller sort of microverse that tapped me into what was going on in like middle school politics. Um, And I think that the advent, when I entered into it, Um, those sites really relied on how much camera phone technology was growing at the time because really everybody just wanted to share pictures and there was kind of this creative aspect of it because with MySpace and with Bebo you could customize your page there was a lot of HTML you know markup stuff going on where you could um, code into different photos and gifs and it was, it was a creative process more than anything because it wasn't like I had 10,000 friends or there was no such thing as followers. It was just pretty much your immediate friend group and your middle school, maybe the, the rival high school. I remember MySpace and then there was Twitter, which at one point was pretty popular. I remember talking to a teen recently who kind of gave me a look when I mentioned Twitter because, you know, who uses that these days? But when you started using Twitter, tell us about that experience. 
So I started using Twitter in 2010, which was also my freshman year of high school. And I think that high school and sort of college age is where Twitter gets really popular because you just have all of these thoughts. And I, and I really became, I think that was when I, I started to become very opinionated. And it seemed like I could just kind of participate in these conversations and shout into this void. And, you know, there was hashtagging going on. And I was on Twitter through the Black Lives Matter movement, through Me Too. And it really felt like you were participating in this global conversation. So I stayed on it for quite a bit um, until... 2019 2020 which is when I wrote that article fear of being a nobody for the New York Times and it was really just about how I realized I wanted to have this global conversation I wanted to just feel like I was participating in something but as I grew as a writer and as an essayist I realized that being able to just kind of put out these unfettered and undeveloped thoughts onto this site it didn't challenge me to really think about those things deeply. It didn't challenge me to cultivate this into a sense of work. It really just was this archive of thoughts that spanned a decade. And at a point I was just like, it's time to let this go. Um, but I know people that have been on it and will probably be on it for another decade. Um, it's actually pretty funny. My younger sister just got a Twitter. She's at her, in her senior year of college. Um, two years ago. And I think it was something about being in college and being deeply opinionated and, you know, learning and having these theories and these social movements going on and campus activism. It made her want to get on Twitter, you know, after everybody else had, I knew had kind of left. Um, right. So, so, yeah. so when we think about adolescents today, they're not on Twitter, but if you're an adult, if you're in the media, we're still pretty uh, hooked to this platform. Yeah. I mean, I think that, it's gotten to the point where you could do Twitter casually still when I was in high school, you could kind of talk about what you had for lunch or your opinions on music. But I think when Donald Trump really, you know, cultivated that platform and made it his own, it became such a charged place where now Twitter, and I think, you know, using it as the venue for the, for the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement that really took place on those platforms of people telling their stories about surviving sexual assault and racist encounters with police, it became much more of a charged battleground for opinions. And so you can't really just muse. I mean, a lot of what people talk about cancel culture, they look up old tweets and things of that nature. So it's just, it's not a casual place. So I think like teens, like, you know, places where you can see videos of cats and then your friend eating breakfast, but Twitter is not, it's not like that anymore. Again, uh, you're hearing with me on Zoom, Bianca Brooks, a New York Times feature writer and host of the podcast, Ask Viv. We wanted to hear from her about her evolution on social media. Coming up, we're going to talk about a Wall Street Journal series that looks into internal research by Facebook, which owns the photo sharing platform Instagram, and what uh, researchers have known for some time, how social media impacts adolescents' self-esteem. If you have a question or you want to join us to talk about what you observe your relation your, your child's relationship with social media the number is 888-720-9677 or find us on facebook and twitter at where we live so viv your uh bianca rather <laughs> ask viv if your podcast <laughs> um when uh when you think about um how you use social media in your teens now you're in your mid-20s how did you see it impacting the way you valued yourself or viewed yourself? Do you feel like you had it a lot easier than, than teens today? 
I think I had it a lot easier because, like I said, social media was not this sort of ever-reaching robot that reached to every single corner of the world. It was really just me and maybe this extensive friend group. So if I was noticed on an Instagram, for example, it came out my junior year of high school, it was only going to be by other people with iPhones. These, like, you know, there wasn't any Facetune, there wasn't any... It, it, at my relationship with myself, it was really just kind of this fun thing that connected me to not that many more people than I would have known in real life. Um, it wasn't uncommon to have 20 or 50 followers. I would get three or four likes and be perfectly happy to just have a place that could archive my summer vacations and, you know, photos of prom. Um, but I think now I really don't know how young girls in particular are surviving this visual culture um, just for the fact that they see themselves every single day. I mean, it's not something people talk about often, but, you know, before the camera phone and these really sophisticated camera phones, I mean, the, the iPhone, you were really taking these grainy photos of yourself or you had a digital camera, but you were not constantly inundated with FaceTime, with Snapchat, with constant images of yourself. And I think when your body is changing, and when you have baby fat and when you just are not a fully developed adult, um, it can be, you would be very hard on yourself comparing those images. I mean, even I'm still hard on myself comparing myself to those images just working in media, but I'm a fully grown adult now. Um, I can't imagine being 13, 14 years old. You know, the images that we had were really magazine images or people that we saw in commercials. And that was our comparison point, but we were not inundated with those images 24 seven. Um, so it was a lot, it was a lot easier back then. So when did you decide to quit social media and was it difficult? I quit social media for the first time in 2019. Um, I don't really think that it was difficult because I think at the time I had just finished, I was, I was a year out of college and I was just realizing that something that, I mean, in college, you, you don't really understand yet is that there's really should be a difference between your public and private life. I think that in college, it's so communal and you're on top of people all the time and you see your friends in class, then you see them in the dining hall, then you see them at the movie theater. Like it's a 24 seven kind of thing. You don't have this sort of private sphere. And so I think that social media was natural for that era of my life. But as I was living alone for the first time and sitting with myself, I was thinking about what deserves to be in this public sphere and what deserved to be private, especially because I was pursuing a career in you know media entertainment television and i thought okay if my job is going to be this thing where i have to be public where i have to be speaking and saying my thoughts do i need those platforms um and so i i altogether deleted my social media from 2019 to early 2020 and then it became very difficult because you know i thought at the time especially when i wrote that times article in mid to late 2019 I was like, the world is moving on from this. People are very tired of being inundated with celebrity and everything else. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And so no longer was it a choice of whether or not you could you know, have social media. It became pretty much the venue in through which we were living our social lives for the entirety of the last two years. And so I began when I was signing contracts and doing you know, speaking deals or whatever, social media became 
a part of those contracts. Um, so if I do a public speaking gig, it'd be like, okay, you have to hashtag this, you have to post this on your story, things like that. So all of a sudden I was like, can I actually have a viable career as a young person without having social media? So then it just became something for me that was an avenue to conduct business and to be a professional. But I think that I took the sociality out of it. Um, I'm not like somebody that is on social media all day or really ever um, if it's not related directly to the work that, I, that I'm conducting. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look at your piece for the New York Times, we'll make sure to uh, tweet it out uh, at where we live. You talk about how it's easy to feel unimportant. And when we think about how adolescents and teens are using social media, also uh, feeling vulnerable or sharing uh, personal things about their lives that you write that you shared about your grandfather's death. And so can you talk about that? and? And when we think about how to encourage young people to use this in a healthy way, you know, what are some of the the things that you think people should try to avoid? I think that, you know, when I wrote that piece and, and talking about my late grandfather, Charles, it was, it was really about, you know, he, he was an artist and he was a musician. He was a trumpeteer. He played for some of the greats, Gladys Knight, John Coltrane, um, and when he died, it seemed like I couldn't really give weight to the level of importance that he had both to me and to my work and his sort of artistic legacy. And so I thought to share it on social media and to talk about who he was, um, because I thought when an artist is really given credit and credibility in this era, it's always on social media. Like, it's kind of like, if it doesn't happen on social media, did it really happen at all? And then later, you know, looking back on that time, I was really thinking about what it means to mourn and how much that's a private process. But I couldn't even really process it privately because, again, I had blurred the lines between public and private because of social media. And I mean, that for me, it it was a very tame experience, but I've seen it happen a lot worse where, you know, um, as a teenager, like you're mad at your boyfriend and you decide that social media is a good place to air out that he's been kissing another girl or whatever. Um, And I think that that is very hard as a child and as a teenager, you don't really understand that some things and some feelings and some thoughts should not go on the internet. Um, And I think that's where, you know, parents come in and really realizing that like there's, yeah, you can share photos and there's things that you would already share with your community. And then there are processes that are going on internally that you really should mediate and slow down and meditate on. Um, And I think that, you know, the strange thing is how much trust has been given to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, to the Twitters of the world, to the WhatsApps and and the Snapchats is thinking that like these places are a good place to house your life's memories for all time. I think one of the funny things when I got off of social media, I began to scrapbook and to print photos again. I print so many photos and I have photo albums because I think about when I was in middle school and when I was on Bebo and MySpace, how I put so many photos of my middle school years and my cheerleading years on those sites. And now, you know, they're lost to the other. I don't know if I could ever get them back. Um, And I think that it's just something about cultivating a real private life, like in your home, with your family, with your friends, and using social media if you want to as an extension to sort of, um, you know, exalt your real life rather than as a replacement for it. 
And I don't know how to teach a teenager that. Um, it scares me to think about raising a kid in that world, but it has to be done. I think it starts in the home because I think to some extent I was raised by a single mother and things like television and social media were used as a replacement for a lack of time in really being able to cultivate my siblings and I's personalities of being able to spend time. And it wasn't as a, a fault of her own, but it was really parents are doing the best that they can. And when you have something that is going to occupy your child's time for hours and hours and hours, if you can afford some peace and quiet, um, I think that you'll take it. But the long-term cost of that, especially for this generation that's upcoming, I think is, is immeasurable. You're definitely right. It is scary for parents uh, these days, but uh, we're going to have a child psychologist joining us in just a few minutes to talk about social media use. But I want to thank Bianca Brooks for coming on, giving us her personal perspective. She's a New York Times feature writer, host of the podcast, Ask Viv. Bianca, pleasure to hear from you. Thank you so much, Lucy. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up, we learn how social media like photo sharing app Instagram affects teens' self-esteem. There have been studies out there that quantify the implications of social media use on kids, including internal research by Facebook, which owns Instagram. And so far, the tech giant isn't doing much about it, but parents can help their kids avoid the negativity and other consequences using social media. We talk about that after the break. What questions do you have? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Remember socialite Paris Hilton? Here's a clip from the documentary... This is Paris. I was so obsessed with looking perfect on the outside. That's why I always have to project basically what I think the public wants. And now I see even little girls who are 10 years old, 9 years old, and they're trying to get the perfect selfie. They're putting the filters on. They can't even 
look at themselves on the phone without putting a filter. I can't even imagine being a 13-year-old girl today. In the film, Hilton goes on to say she feels personal responsibility for starting selfie culture, something that teens, even some adults, obsess over today in their social media feeds. We're talking about this because of a recent story, a series of stories in the Wall Street Journal that found Facebook, the owner of photo sharing social media app Instagram, has internal research showing how harmful Instagram is to teens, especially girls. Joining us now to talk about this and also tools that parents can use uh, to help their children navigate social media, Dr. Katherine Steiner-Adair. She's a clinical and consulting psychologist and author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. Katherine, welcome to our show. Oh, thank you, Lucy. Great to be with you. Uh, for our listeners who haven't read this series in the Wall Street Journal, it's uh, based on a, a whistleblower uh, that uh, shared this information with the Wall Street Journal that showed Facebook, again, the tech giant that owns Instagram, had internal research back in March of 2020 that shows social media, this social media platform, Instagram, uh, most used by adolescents, is harmful to teens' girls' body image and their well-being. And they've had that information, even though Mark Zuckerberg and others, um, Zuckerman and others have uh, been in front of uh, Congress. Um, they have this information, but they have a completely different public image out there. And so, Catherine, when you hear this, this latest um, about um, the way uh, social media impacts teens, you know, what goes through your mind as a psychologist? Well, two things go through my mind. The first is, of course, it's harmful to girls, especially and teenagers, because if you asked any school counselor, they would tell you the vast majority of disciplinary situations they have in some way or another usually tie back to social media uh, for kids who are being bullied or depressed or anxious or school avoidant. And so if you're in the trenches with kids, this is not new news. Um, the other way in which it's not surprising is that Facebook and network is not an organization that children so that they would conceal serious research from the public, from parents, from educators, from health professionals, just to me is uh, in line with their lack of real concern and frankly, moral integrity about how they conduct their business. So it's extremely helpful to have this information because it calls them to the table in a way that they've actually been deceptive and, and, and knowingly so. It's one thing to not know that something is hurting children. But to know that it is hurting children and to hide that is something that should really cause all of us to think, what are we doing um, by participating in certain ways on these sites? And, and it's not that it's all bad. And technology and screen, you know, is, does a lot of good for kids. But there are some ways in which we know it is not good or it's risky, let's put it that way, and we need to share that research and be forthcoming and find really pro-social and, and pro-tech health and well-being approaches so that kids at the right age can use these wonderful tools in ways that aren't going to hurt them. To put a, a finer point on this research, again, this is internal research shared with the Wall Street Journal, what Facebook knows about uh, its platforms, including Instagram. One of their slides said... We know 
that Instagram makes body image issues worse in one in three girls. One in three girls, Catherine. Well, my earliest research way back in the late 70s and 80s is why did eating disorders come into our country? Because unlike depression and schizophrenia, you don't find it everywhere. They are culturally mediated illnesses. And girls have been told more than ever, you know, that their body is their primary source of power. And no matter how gifted or talented or musical or creative or kind you are, if you don't look a certain way, you're not really going to be deemed successful. And so, you know, just at the moment in history where girls were trying to put, throw their weight around and women are trying to get a seat at the table, in comes Anna Sheik. And then you have this medium that amplifies those messages. So the voice of the dominant culture that says girls, beginning around six, seven, and eight, that what you look like is an incredibly important tool and resource for you. Then you go skip up to adolescence or teen, it's really middle school girls in particular, who of course feel wobbly and insecure. Who doesn't in middle school? And you're in a culture that says, oh, life feels out of control. You feel a little bad. Oh, you're having drama with your friends. Oops, you're not as smart, maybe getting the grades you wanted. The one thing you can do to make yourself better is fix your body, go on a diet, change your hair, change your looks, join, you know, three different new workout regimes. So it's a, it's a perfect storm of, of many, many complicated um, weather systems leading to it. And it's real. I wanted to fit in a call from a Connecticut resident. Jessica Pellegrino is with us. She's actually written about social media and working on how to use her platform in a more positive way. Jessica, mm -hmm. are you there? Hi. Yeah, so um, for me, the, the body image issues with social media happened a little bit later in my life, but I really do believe um, what the psychologist was saying about Instagram just being a pressure cooker for bad body image, um, particularly in its insidiousness of, like, um, labeling it as health, right? So, like, the fitness platform on Instagram offers um, medical and nutritional advice from influencers with no background other than just being skinny. And I think, especially in teenage girls, that's like impossibly insidious, right? How do you, how do you, how do you avoid trying to do those trendy diets when you see them quote unquote working on, on the women on the internet? And when I, when I started my weight loss journey, I think my main goal was to present it in a way on Instagram that was maybe a little bit more real so that the perception of reality wasn't so feigned. For our listeners um, who may not be familiar with Instagram, when you click on a video or check out a post, those algorithms then continue to feed the user more of the same. And is that where it spirals out of control, Jessica? Yeah, absolutely. And I also think these influencers are being paid a lot of right. money to mm -hmm. um, to tote these products that are not FDA approved and not necessarily good for your health. But when you see a skinny person using a skinny tea or something, you're going to be inclined to try it. And I think that's an impossible fence for teenage girls to be faced mm -hmm. with. And before we let we, you go, Jessica, you know, how have you curbed or changed the way that you're using social media? Yeah, or have you I gotten rid of it? Uh, I haven't gotten rid of it. I think when the pandemic broke out, um, social media kind of came into a more positive light of being able to like keep people connected. And I think just the best thing that you can do is engage with social media in a positive way. 
congratulate people when they post something nice, you know, message someone when they seem upset. I think social media is very passive. They've created it that way. They've created unlimited scrolling that never ends. So you're never prompted to close the app down. So I think if you continue to use it passively, it will be negative. But if you just engage with it in a positive way, I think it could be really positive. Well, Jessica Pellegrino, again, a resident of Cheshire, Connecticut. Thank you for calling in to share your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, Again, this is where we live. Uh, With us on Zoom is a child psychologist, clinical and consulting psychologist, Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair, author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. We wanted to talk more about the tools that parents have uh, to help their children uh, navigate social media, because I had cited this statistic, Catherine, earlier in the show that nine out of 10 teens, they're online, whether it's constantly or or at least once a day. And so it's impossible, I guess, to, to keep them off. But, you know, how can parents talk to their children about the way these uh, apps uh, are used, the filters, the the way that um, it can be a a really a bad feedback loop if you get stuck in just worrying about your image and and how your body looks? Well, there are a lot of things parents can do, and I'm going to get into that. But the the thing that I also want to say is that teenagers are by nature um, very social, and there's a social comparison effect that we all have. And the most effective way to help your individual child is to get a group of parents and your kids' friends or a school or the parent association to do this collectively. Because what's really tricky about this is that this is where kids socialize. This is their social world. And you don't want to isolate your child. So there's organizations like wait until eighth, wait until eighth grade to give your kid, your your daughters and sons also, boys struggle with this too, um, a fully loaded smartphone. But so you really wanna try and do this at the community level and also schools need to start doing tech health, education, tech ethics, your brain on tech at a much, much earlier age. Some schools are starting to do this and I think it, it's imperative that we create core curriculum that actually gives kids the tools to understand their own neurological development on technology, their psychological, the social risks, the psychological risks, et cetera, because this is their life. This is where they live and it's not going away. Now that said, there are a lot of ways parents can, um, you know, monitor, educate, and then monitor their, their kids' development with technology. The first thing to think about is really why are you giving your child a phone? Is it if it's for safety, you know, then then put the people they need to call if there's something wrong, you know, on it. There are wonderful apps like RPAC and Circle that really let parents control just about everything their kids do. And at a younger age, even at the younger age, when you really do want to take full control, you want to be talking to your kids about why you're doing this. You can share with them the research. I talk to eight-year-olds around the country about the impact of being on a smartphone on our brains and on their friendships and how, you know, when we're anonymous, we'll say something, um, we'll text something rather than say it face to face. And, and we, they get it and they're really smart and they love to learn about themselves and their own development. So there are apps, there are community efforts, there are um, conversations that need to be ongoing. What do you see online today? 
the most important thing to do is when your children are on any new site, watch it with them, play by the rules. One of the hardest things, and I totally get this. I get this as a parent because the way the industry is set up, one of the hardest dilemmas that parents face is you are not supposed to be younger than 13. And yet, I remember interviewing this one lawyer for the book who said, you know, I'm an ethicist, I'm a lawyer, and yet am I going to do the right thing or am I, and risk my daughter's social isolation or am I going to lie for her? And I did. I lied. And I, I, I'm so conflicted because now I'm telling her we don't have to abide by the rules. You're special. The law doesn't apply to you. And what I would add to that is that when you go against the right thing to do with a child, whether it's cutting in line or being rude to a server or getting them an app that legally they're not the right age for, you're also sort of telling them in a certain way, I don't have confidence in you that you can handle not being on this app, this site, seeing this movie. And when we have conversations with kids, beginning at a very young age, about why we think something is good for them or not good for them. And we're not too intense. And we're not too, you know, emotionally, you know, off the rails. When we're calm and approachable and informed, children are really likely to listen to you. And children do better with parents who are protective of them. It's called a nurturing and a authoritative, which is not authoritarian, which is I can't, you can't because I say so, but really mm -hmm. explaining to them, look, these are, these are the risk factors. This is what the research says. Now let's figure out what's in your best interest. How much time on a social media site makes sense? What else do you want to do in a, your day? What else do we as a family value? you doing in a day. So all that adds up to creating mm -hmm. a family responsible use agreement, which is a really important thing to have, where you create sort of, you know, an understanding, an understanding. And also parents need to be in that too, because it drives kids nuts when their parents pick them up at school, they get in the car, they had a big test, hi darling, how was your test? And the child starts talking and the you know, the, the mom gets a ping and it's, hold on, honey, wait a sec, I just have to take this. And suddenly they're in a conversation with somebody who's not even in the car and they just ask them a very important conversation. <laughs> Catherine, so you're talking you're talking to all parents right now because we've all done it, right? <laughs> I've done it too. Yep, I've yep. done it too. And my kids call me on and I wrote the book, you know. <laughs> so I think the thing that we really have to understand when it comes to social media are a couple of things. One, the phones are not phones. These are very powerful computers. And social media apps are designed to grab our attention, get us psychologically dependent on them. People use lower, you know, lower class A addicted, that they are designed brilliantly to keep us engaged. And we literally disconnect. We disconnect from time. We think something's going to take two seconds. It takes 10 minutes. Our empathy goes down. We're agitated when our kids say, mom, mom, we got to go. Like, hold on, hold on. You know, our tone of voice changes. We forget where we are. We say things on the, you know, Bluetooth in the car that are not meant for kids' ears. So these are really powerful devices that are neurologically designed brilliantly by Facebook. 
to mm-hmm. steal in some ways, you know, aspects of your, your middle school kids' healthy development. So I our wanted, job is I wanted to encourage. To I wanted to encourage listeners, uh, especially if they're parents, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Catherine's sharing some really interesting uh, guidance for us and in, even hearing how schools should be involved with uh, a technology curriculum and giving uh, students tools. If that's something happening in your school district, uh, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, my guest, Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair, a clinical and consulting psychologist, author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. We need to take a, a short break. I did want to mention, because we were talking about uh, the what Facebook knows about its social media app, Instagram, our Connecticut Senator, U.S. Senator um, Blumenthal, it'll be holding another Senate hearing next week. Uh, talking about this uh, report about the internal research and what the tech giant knows about um, its social media apps and how it impacts uh, teens. So we'll be following that. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. We'll be back after a short break. Can you guys help me pick a filter? I don't know if I should go with XX Pro or Valencia. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, Connecticut's facing a waste crisis, and there's a new incentive for cities and towns to manage trash sustainably. On the next Where We Live, we'll look into food scrap collection and composting. You can join us, too, that conversation Monday. Now, it's pretty impossible to keep adolescents, teenagers off social media, but we're talking about tools parents can give their kids to use these platforms in a way that doesn't impact their self-esteem because research shows it does. It impacts body image. Uh, It makes them feel uh, like they're um, not uh, being comparable to their peers, and that's damaging for children. We know that. Um, My guest today on Zoom, Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair, clinical and consulting psychologist and author of the big disconnect, protecting childhood and family relationships in the digital age. I wanted to take a call from a listener in West Hartford. Lisa, go ahead. Oh, hi. Good morning. I I just wanted to comment that I have a 14 and an 18-year-old, both girls. And in hindsight, I think the best gift I ever gave to them was a month every summer at sleepaway camp. Mm-hmm. That did not allow any technology. And it opened their eyes to being able to be social in an old-fashioned way without social media. And they understand now as teenagers that they can take a break from social media and the phone and technology and still have a circle of friends that they can go to in person. And it's been a real eye-opener for them. And it's been really healthy, I think. Thank you, Lisa. Catherine, did you want to respond? Well, Lisa, I am such a fan of camps. I am a camp girl myself, and I consult to camps. And you are so right. And what's so interesting, the research on the impact of camp, just six days at a camp offline for both not only the campers, but the counselors, everybody's mental health is improved. And the most important thing is that 
um, not only are children developing their social skills and learning how to enjoy and deal with the ups and downs of, of ongoing connection to other people, but it's a huge, huge health um, impact for your brain. You know, to be in nature, to um, have yourself, all your senses geared to the people and the places and the earth and the planet around you, and not to be neurologically constantly responding to the pings of your smartphone telling you, you better look, you better look. So I'm a, a great fan of, of getting into the wilderness. And think of, you know, not just camp, but when you have school breaks and vacations, really think about how you want to protect your family time. You know, on vacation, you know, if you have to check your phones, do it in the morning. Do have a set time in the morning. Everyone can look. Have a set time at the end of the day. But be together as a family. Connect face to face in real life. Do things together. And no phones. Because what we know is even when you go on a walk with your family in the woods, if you have your phone, neurologically, you will be distracted. You will not be as present because that is how powerful they are on grabbing our attention and our anxiety. So, you know, when you send a child to camp, you're, you're really giving them a, a huge gift on many levels. Catherine, can we talk about uh, the last 18 months or so living in this pandemic where uh, even if parents before the pandemic had tried to reinforce boundaries of when you can be online and when you can't, and that I feel like has kind of gone out the window because we so many uh, families, uh, children were online more because of hybrid or online school and parents frankly had to get their work done. And so now that we're, we're trying to, I guess, um, you know, rein that in again, it can be challenging. Mm-hmm. I know I see that in my six-year-old daughter today where she's, you know, she's looking to use the tablet more often than before yes. the pandemic. And so, you know, how do we, um, you know, try to reinforce those boundaries again? Oh, it's such a, it's such a good question. And let me just say, I mean, you know, technology and screens were life-saving during the pandemic. And there's so many great ways we can use social media and screen time. I mean, I am so pro-tech. I'm just pro-tech health and well-being. So I think what you want to do is really reflect as a family what worked, what didn't work. The best question to ask your six-year-old or your 16-year-old is what led you to pick up a device or your smartphone or what, what, do you, what are you looking for? What are you missing? And then, you know, really think about it. And if it's, well, I want to talk to my friends. Well, is that the best way to be with your friends? You know, what are other ways you can be with your friends? But the other question that's so important is ask your kids how they feel after. Gee, you look pretty excited when you pick up your phone. Now you look kind of, I don't know, not, not as happy. How do you feel? How do you feel? Because we want to help young people pay attention to even their breathing, even their state of, you know, every aspect of their state of mind. So ask them the whys and ask them how they feel, knowing that all screen is not created equal. But what happens when you're on this particular screen, this particular app, and then try and figure out, well, okay, this is a part of your life. What's the most competent way to use it so you actually feel good rather than bad? What's the right time? What's too much time? What's too little time? Because, we know, social isolation is not good either. Mm -hmm. And, you know, really have calm conversations like, okay, so is this making your life better? Is it making your body image better? Or at what point do you start comparing yourself and putting yourself down and then suddenly find that, you know, explore or other 
algorithms are sending you to my Anna sites, like how to be anorexic or how to lose more weight or how to skip meals or how to make yourself purge. I mean, those are the slippery slopes that parents really want to make sure their, their teenagers are not going down and really talk about as a family, what are your values? Like what matters most? Of course, how we present ourselves to the world, both face-to-face and online matters. But we need to also face it. How people present themselves online is completely fake. It's photoshopped. It's, you know, filtered to the nth degree. And nobody's posting their miserable moments, their insecure moments. So when you just see all these perfect things or parties you weren't invited to, my gosh, imagine what it would be like for to be a teenager today, you see every party you weren't invited to. You, There's so much mean stuff that goes on in the way people like or don't like posts. It's so important to check in with your kids. How are you feeling? I know you posted something. How are you feeling about posting that? Did you get the responses you wanted? Oh, sweetie, that's so hard. What do you think that does? You know, And then just start to watch the social dilemma. For God's sake, watch the social dilemma with your middle school kids. And look at, you know, there are places that have a lot of great information. The Center for Humane Technology happens to be a favorite of mine. Um, but there's, that's what we need to do. We need to really sit by our kids' side and see what they're doing and invite them into conversations. And the other thing that is so good to do with children is talk about yourself. Talk about how it makes you feel. Ask them to make suggestions for you. Ask their advice to solve your problems. And then children start to feel like, you know, they can really come to you and Catherine, talk about. Yep. We Go. have gotten a couple of uh, comments from listeners. Mandy lives in New Milford, Connecticut, and she shared a few times in the past few years, our school district has brought in Scott Driscoll from Internet Safety Concepts, where he mm-hmm. speaks with the kids during the school yeah. day and also does a presentation for parents at night and says it's wonderful for parents who are not so internet savvy. Uh, Meg shared that her 13-year-old niece got her phone taken away from her last year as discipline, but she said a week away from the phone made her feel better mentally. Now she tries to make a practice of taking breaks from her phone that but easily gets sucked back into the loop. I'm wondering if you can comment on that, because I know some parents, we, you know, we do think, well, we're going to limit, we're going to use that as discipline. If you don't do this, you lose some time on your, your phone or your tablet. Is that effective? It can be effective. I think, you know, what you want to always do is make discipline be responsive and relational to the the problem that caused the discipline, some kind of restorative practice. If kids are on their phones too much and they can't self-regulate it and you've tried other methods or they were um, cruel, socially cruel to somebody, yes, I would take it away and have, you know, this is a tool. It can be used for good. It can be used for harm. You just used it to hurt somebody. You just used it to gang up and collude with making somebody feel miserable. You need to take a break from this and think about how to be a better human being online. Um But um, so, of course, it can be effective. But the most important thing with discipline is the way in which you talk about it and the way in which you give a a child the understanding and the opportunity to improve and, and account for what they did and apologize for what they did and do better. 
We just have a couple of minutes left, and we've been focusing on the negative uh, implications of social media use on teens. But uh, mm-hmm. there, there, there is there are places that help uh, uh, people, Absolutely. whether it's uh, you know adolescents or adults, uh, um, maybe who are having mental health issues, where they feel like there's a community that understands where they're coming from. So I just wanted to make sure we we talk about that before we end. It's there's no question about it. You know, social media can be life saving. For, for kids who are growing up in families that don't accept their developing identity, if they can find people who support them online, that can be fabulous. I mean, it can be a little tricky because, you know, you can join a, you know, a, a, an, a pro-anorexic site and get the wrong kind of support. But for many kids, having a community of people around the world who share their interests, whether it's playing chess or they're writing fan fiction or they're celebrating, you know, their, uh, their things and sharing things that they love and they're co-creating online, if they're co-creating games online, if they're creating hacks, it's a wonderful thing. The, um, and it's been life-saving. And, and one thing I've seen in my work in schools that I love is that when a teenager posts like an emo quote or that suggests that they're really depressed and, and thinking about hurting themselves, a peer sees it and calls a teacher. Now, that's fabulous. I mean, we have stories of kids saving each other's lives across the country because they hear someone's feeling suicidal. They go to their teacher. The teacher contacts the police or a teacher at that school. They've never met. It doesn't matter. They've saved a life. This is fabulous. Fabulous. So it's not that all social media is bad. It's that, well, there are many issues, but it's that it can be, and particularly... You know, there are different ways to also help girls. We have to teach girls beginning at eight how to deconstruct messages in the culture that make them think that how they look is so important. I wrote a... And Catherine, uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but it has been a pleasure to hear from you, Dr. Catherine Steiner-Adair, clinical and consulting psychologist, author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. Definitely worth a read. We appreciate your time. Today's show, produced by Tess Terrible. Katie Pellico was on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Our theme music, composed by Hannes Brown. Have a great weekend.